0: Hello, and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes, and I am your host. And today we've got a treat for y'all. Megan sat down with Ted Terry, a candidate for the U.S. Senate and the current mayor of Clarkston, Georgia. Mayor Ted joined us to discuss his views on a variety of issues, including where he stands on impeachment and the filibuster in the Senate. And Megan and Ted also spoke about several issues of racial justice, including environmental justice and the impact of pollution on frontline communities, the racialized history of drug law enforcement, and residential segregation enacted through redlining policies at the federal and local levels. I think y'all are going to like this conversation. One plug before we get started today, if you are a new listener to PeachPod, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are a show about state and local politics in Georgia, and throughout the next year through the 2020 election cycle, you're going to hear from candidates for Congress, like Senate candidate Ted Terry. And you're also going to hear from state and local candidates, and we'll discuss the important policy issues that impact so many people's daily lives. So without further delay, let me turn this over to Megan and her conversation with Ted Terry, the mayor of Clarkson and a Democratic candidate for the US Senate.
1: Well, I've got Mayor Ted Terry on the phone for an interview. He is a U.S. Senate candidate. And um, first, Mayor Ted, welcome to the show.
2: Yes, thank you. Greetings from Clarkston, Georgia, the most ethnically diverse square mile in America. How are you?
1: Doing well. How about yourself?
2: Doing fantastic. About you know, 10 days into this campaign and already um, feeling the energy out there for change uh, here in Georgia.
1: Great. So let's go ahead and dive in with the first question. For anyone who may not be familiar with you, tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up entering politics by running for mayor of Clarkston.
2: Well, my involvement goes way back to high school when I was 17 years old, um, living in Florida, actually volunteered on a campaign in the 2000 election. And uh, so I've spent the last uh, two decades of my life uh, being an activist, uh, an advocate, a volunteer, a campaigner, um, a, a uh, a lobbyist for the labor unions and for the environmental causes, um, and then you know when I moved to Clarkston uh, over eight years ago, I I got involved and ran for mayor um, and became the youngest mayor in Clarkston's history. And uh, Clarkston, you know, uniquely before I even got there was known as Ellis Island of the South. Um, it's been a town that's been welcoming and receiving refugees from over 40 nationalities and. 60 different languages uh, over the last 35 uh, plus years almost 40 years now and that's why it's known as the most ethnically diverse square mile in america Uh, clarkston is uh, about 1.4 square miles and so it's it's a small town here in metro atlanta in central DeKalb county um, and uh, we're uh, we're we're proud to be a welcoming and compassionate community uh, not just to immigrants, um, but to all um, newcomers, whether they're born here or come as um, asylum seekers or refugees. And um, and so I'm, I'm in my second term now. And now, yep, now running for the United States Senate in 2020 against David Purdue.
1: Excellent. On Political Rewind on your launch day, you said, quote, my name is Ted Terry and I'm not a lawyer, unquote. You have spent much of your time in politics as an advocate while Teresa Tomlinson, the other Democrat currently in this race, is a career attorney before also becoming a mayor. Do you feel your activist background gives you experience that meaningfully differentiates you differentiates you from Tomlinson? Well, I think
2: my experience is exactly what I'm running on. Um, I before uh, well, before running for, for Senate here, um, I've served as the chapter director for the Georgia Sierra Club, uh, Sierra Club, the largest environmental organization. You know, in the country, and we've been ad- been advocating um, for more clean energy, and proud to you know successfully say that we were part of the movement that's helped um, you know secure more solar investments through the Public Service Commission Integrated Resource Plan uh, in 2016, and then just recently, just a week ago, here in the 2019 uh, IRP, as they call it. And before that, I worked for the Georgia AFL-CIO, so I've actually been a union member. A member of Ask Me um, What Was Local 3, and now it's merged with Local 1644 here in Atlanta um, and advocated for workers' rights, um, advocated to um, change the, um, uh, the uh, employee misclassification um, that exists right now in Georgia where independent contractors are sort of the standard for empl- uh, employers and large corporations to skirt employment protections. And before that, um, helped train, uh, recruit uh, people to run for office uh, to uh, work on campaigns and I'm proud to say that over my you know last ten years in Georgia uh, or over ten years, um, have trained hundreds of candidates uh, to run for office and work on campaigns and 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 several of them have actually now been elected and and served um, in the House, for county commission for city council seats, um, and up and down the ballot. And so I think you know just being on the front lines um, every day working with um, ordinary working people, people who um, care about our rivers, our coastlines, who care about workers' rights, um, who um, who are you know trying to address the the problems that are faced in our communities and you know one of the things I realized uh, a long time ago is that politicians will say anything to get you to vote for them and and so my philosophy uh, at least as being a public servant is don't believe you know, what I say I'm going to do, look at what I've done and what I'm what I um, am willing to fight for, and then you'll know what I believe in. And so um, I, I have that activist and advocate mindset of you don't um, take anything for granted. You have to have a sense of urgency when it comes to the problems um, that our community and our society face, um, and you have to never give up. And I think there's a lot of politicians out there who, once they get elected, um, they kind of get complacent, um, and I think it's uh, – it's uh, uh, campaigns are always a really good opportunity to raise the issues um, that sometimes people aren't talking about, and that's what I'm hoping to do uh, with this campaign, not only highlight the the progress and the bold, forward-thinking agenda we've pushed forward in Clarkston and, and led on, um, but other issues that I think, um, quite frankly, the, the U.S. Senate has um, ignored uh, and – Misdirected to, to take up.
1: So let's dive into some policy here. In recent months, an unprecedented number of parents with children and unaccompanied minors have reached the southern border, overwhelming available resources and creating a detention crisis. Several Democrats running for president have called for the repeal of the federal law that has enabled family separations. In your view, why should Congress do? What should Congress do about conditions at the border? And would you like the Senate to pursue legislation decriminalizing the unlawful border crossings?
2: Well, let me just say that the conditions at the border um, are completely um, are awful and um, should not be tolerated, and we need to have a, a certain level of, of humanity uh, when treating other human beings, particularly ones who are fleeing and seeking asylum. Um, and so the, the, the photos and the videos that are coming out, particularly with Vice President Pence. Uh, Sort of, you know, awkwardly looking at a group of men behind uh, a chain link fence in a a warehouse space. Um, Those kind of conditions just should not be tolerated. And so, you know, clearly, you know, the funding of those facilities, the funding of the processing, the funding of, you know, the security apparatus to make sure that everyone is safe, but also taken care of you know has to be paramount. Um, but let me let me back up a little bit and say that you know as mayor of Clarkston um, we're we're you know in essence on the front lines of the refugee and migration crisis. Um, we you know literally have been receiving refugees you know every year except for a couple of years um, in 2013 and then during the travel ban. Uh, but every week refugee families uh, fly in through Hartsfield-Jackson Airport and are resettled in Clarkston, Georgia. And so, um, you know, through the one, just the, the element of welcoming uh, new families, people who come from, uh, but some in Central America, mostly from the refugee program, um, who have come from the Congo, from Syria, from Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, from Burma, from Bhutan, from Ethiopia, Somalia, um, just name a place that's, you know, in, um, in political or um, civil, you know, turmoil or civil war, And Clarkson has received families from those parts of the world and uh, through this resettlement process. And I've had the privilege um, and uh, the unique opportunity to travel uh, to um, uh, not only the United Nations but to Europe to meet and coordinate and share best practices with mayors um, around uh, the world who uh, are in places like Gazette uh, Turkey – who are on the border of Syria? Um, mayors from Ecuador that are dealing with the Venezuelan uh, migrant crisis. Um, people who are uh, mayors in Italy and Spain um, who are dealing with migrants uh, from North Africa and Libya. And you know, the the it's clear that the migration crisis that's happening at our southern border is not a an isolated phenomenon. We are in a situation now, um, and this is the the, the highest number of human beings in refugee and displaced status since going back to World War II. We're talking about nearly 100 million people have been displaced from their homes because of violence, because of persecution, uh, based on religious, political, or ethnic identity, and then increasingly more because of climate disruption, which is exacerbating areas that previously didn't have um, these, these turmoils. And so we have to, you know, understand that um, this is a a global crisis. This is a global issue. And the only way I believe that we're going to solve this as, you know, as a world community is we're going to have to to learn from each other. And we're going to have to acknowledge that um, if we don't invest in parts of the world um, that need the investment in infrastructure and education, um, and we don't find a way to help out people um, in those home countries provide, if not temporary refuge, and in some cases providing some refuge as refugee status, uh, we, are, we are not going to see these migratory crises be alleviated anytime soon. And so this is something that has to be, um, at least in the, the southern border, it has got to be a regional approach. It's got to be something that Canada, America, Mexico, um, Central America, and South American countries have to all work together. I would argue that the model that's been in place um, in Europe and in parts of the Middle East, where countries that are typically the the number one receiving countries, broker arrangements with other countries in the region to to try to resettle people who clearly will never be able to go home. And so, you know, my my first approach um, as a senator would be to um, uh, to to try to create common ground and common cause with all of the other countries in Central, South America, and North America to make sure that everyone has um, a a share of responsibility in alleviating the refugee and migration crisis, if not for a temporary period. Um, But clearly in some cases, people who just will never be able to go home, um, we've got to find some way for them to, um, uh, to, 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 to find sanctuary. Um, and to start their lives
1: over. A moment ago, you mentioned climate change. Last year's report from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said that the world may have as little as 12 years to reach emissions goals to stave off the worst effects of climate change. Recently, congressional Democrats signed on to a non-binding Green New Deal resolution. How do you view the Green New Deal? What does the term mean to you, and do you support it or something like it?
2: Well, let me uh, start by saying that um, what I've been... As an advocate for solar energy in Georgia going back to 2012 um, and being very actively involved in Georgia Power's um, 20-year energy plan process for these last um, six, seven years, um, I can tell you that Georgia's number one natural resource is not coal mines, it's not oil wells, it's not fracking wells, uh, it's, it's the sun the number one economy industry in Georgia is agriculture. And what do you need to grow crops? You need a lot of land, and you need a lot of sun. It's the perfect combination to invest in solar energy. So when I hear the Green New Deal, I think, what does that mean for Georgia and particularly parts of rural Georgia that have been forgotten and left behind? And these are exactly the kind of communities that to this day, thanks to investments from the Public Service Commission, which by the way is an all Republican commission, and georgia power you've seen tens of millions of dollars invested in communities like Twiggs county um, a county where after a solar farm was installed last year their tax digest doubled which means that now the school board has um, uh, been able to uh, have receive additional revenues to support their schooling to provide vital services for the residents in that county and this is something that we have to you know acknowledge um, that there is an Economic benefits to solar energy. Number one, there's no cleanup, right? So right now we're spending a billion dollars in ratepayer money to clean up 26 coal ash ponds that Georgia Power um, has placed around the state uh, from decades of burning coal, and uh, and the cost of those cleanups, the cost of pollution, the cost of groundwater contamination, air pollution. And the public health cost cost is arguably several more billions of dollars. Solar energy is clean energy. It's energy that, once installed, um, has a lifespan of 15 uh, to 30 years as an energy asset. Um, And it's delivering real value and media short and medium-term jobs for communities that have seen outsourcing. They've seen a lot of the young people moving to the city. Um, And so when I hear Green New Deal, I think – here is an opportunity for us to invest in our number one energy resource, and that's the sun.
1: Gotcha. So conventional wisdom says that a president has only about 100 days or so in which to pass a few key priorities before backlash and then the next round of elections take over. If Democrats are able to secure a trifecta in the 2020 elections, do you believe climate change should be um, one of the top legislative agendas or maybe even the top?
2: Well, what I can say is if there's legislation that substantially invests in solar energy, um I would be fully supportive of that. Um, and the, again, you know, I think you know the number one job of a Georgia senator is to represent Georgia and what's in the best interest. And so this just so happens. there's a really great convergence. The more that we invest in solar energy, the more clean energy we put onto the grid. And the more economic value will will we'll, uh, invest in um, in, in uh, across Georgia, and it will reduce carbon emissions, um, which will help stop the the current march towards the climate crisis that we're in, and ultimately that goal is uh, reversing global warming. And so I would say solar energy investment has to be you know top of the list in that legislative package. Um, and then the final thing I would say um, that I think is probably maybe even more important, and that's addressing a just transition for communities that have been impacted the most by pollution, by environmental injustices, and communities that have um, uh, been supported by the fossil fuel industry. And so a case in point, there are two coal plants that are being shut down in Georgia Power's Integrated Resource Plan, Plant Hammond and Plant McIntosh. Plant Hammond delivered millions of dollars in tax revenue to Floyd County Uh, commissioners and school board for years and years and years. And once that plant is dismantled, um, they will lose a huge part of their tax base and lose a lot of jobs. And so the investments in clean energy uh, have to go to those communities um, that have been impacted the most that are transitioning from a fossil fuel based economy to a clean energy economy. And so I would want to see those investments made in those communities um, and then finding ways to address uh, the the energy burden. and this is where I talk about environmental injustices because if you look at parts of our states, um, whether they're inner city, um, parts of South like Southwest Atlanta that have a really high energy burden where people are paying a, a up to ten to fifteen percent of their monthly salary on their utility bill, or communities, um, mostly black communities around Georgia that have been subject and and been subjected to um, uh, uh, environmental pollution, air or water pollution over the years. And so the the investment in energy efficiency to help people uh, reduce their energy uh, burden would have the greatest impact. And I think the most broad ranging uh, uh, equitable and just um, investments um, in, in fighting climate change.
1: You told Atlanta Magazine that you supported a, quote, Medicare for all who want it, end quote, public option. Do you oppose eliminating all but supplemental private health insurance? And what are the benefits of pursuing a plan that preserves a role for private insurance?
2: Yeah, well, I think we need to join the rest of the industrialized world. Um, uh, If you look at systems like in Germany and France and Australia, uh, they have universal health care coverage. So number one, the goal should be universal health care coverage. No one should have to worry about going bankrupt, losing their job, um, be, uh, you know, missing you know, missing out on uh, paying key bills because they can't afford their prescription dr- drugs or afford their insurance premiums or even pay for uh, medical treatment. And so the, the Medicare for all who wants it is basically the public option. Um, it's something that Oh, we almost got to um, with um, the Affordable Care Act, Um, but obviously the Senate was very—you know—had to have the 60 votes, and so a lot of things got pared down to pass that piece of legislation. Um, And so, um, I think the 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 most immediate, most impactful step that we can take that I think would be had the most uh, highest possibility of passing would be to insert the public option. And you know, if you if you talk to um, uh, my conservative friends out there. Uh, the monster of competition uh, is preeminent when talking about healthcare. And I look at the healthcare system before o- Obamacare was passed, and you know, apparently there was competition, but it still wasn't uh, addressing the, the the access to coverage, um, the the protections on preexisting conditions. Um, and I think that a a Medicare for all program would immediately deliver real competition in the insurance marketplace. And I think uh, what you would end up seeing is you would see uh, insurance companies um, uh, adjusting their price structures to be more competitive. And I think that is the most immediate step. And I think so. W- what basically you're looking at is a is a government uh, healthcare system, uh, an insurance system that um, I think would be very, very competitive with the current private insurance.
1: Let's stick with healthcare for a moment here. In this year's legislative session, Georgia adopted one of the nation's strictest abortion bans, prohibiting the procedure after six weeks and only allowing limited exceptions. What is your view of this legislation?
2: Well, it's awful. It's unconstitutional. Um, Roe v. Wade is the is the precedent that must be, um, I think, uh, followed. And uh, when it comes to you know confirming judges in the Senate, I think that right there has to be. Uh, one of the most preeminent questions that are asked is, um, is Roe v. Wade something that should be preserved? And that's something that I think every judicial candidate, um, whether the Supreme Court or lower level courts, um, should be asked. And so I, I support the repeal of that, that abortion ban bill, um, and we should uh, provide uh, the access that's needed for, um, for women if they need it.
1: So this is a state matter likely to be handled in the courts, but Congress does play a role in reproductive health care policy. Would you like to see the policy which blocks federal Medicaid funding for abortion abortion services, also known as the Hyde Amendment, repealed?
2: Yes, we should repeal that. Um, We have to put these medical decisions into the, the, the hands of the women and their doctors. And that's that's it, period. It's a medical decision, it's a personal decision, and uh, we must respect a woman's right to choose.
1: You told the AJC that the American people have all the evidence they need to defeat Trump in 2020, and that the party's focus should be on the ballot box. How do you address the argument from some impeachment supporters that Congress has a duty to hold the president accountable and that conceding the question of impeachment sets a dangerous precedent where Congress abdicated its check within our system of checks and balances?
2: Well, my view is very simple. I think Mike Pence is a far greater threat um, to uh, reversing a lot of the gains we've made under President Obama in terms of policies. Uh, President Trump is among one of the lowest, uh, has one of the most lowest uh, approval ratings um, of sitting presidents running for a second term right now. And so um, if I was a Democrat running for president, I would wanna run against Donald Trump, not Mike Pence, number one. And I think that having Donald Trump in office, running for reelection in 2020, will give all of the people around the country and in Georgia uh, a real clear choice uh, about the direction that we want to go in the next four years. And so mine's a very practical political choice. I think that we would beat Donald Trump, have a better shot of beating Donald Trump and David Perdue than beating Mike Pence and David Perdue.
1: So, we've talked about some sweeping progressive policies, and we'll get to others here in a minute. But whether it's nationwide climate mobilization, healthcare expansions, or the Equality Act, Democrats are unlikely to find Republican support for bold progressive reforms. Do you think that the next Democratic majority in the Senate should eliminate the filibuster and pass bills with 51 votes?
2: Well, I think actually, before even discussing ending the filibuster, um, I think that we need to have a serious conversation about the representation of in congress of the district of columbia and puerto rico and i've seen um, i think some very practical and straightforward plans right now that would allow the opportunity for dc and if puerto rico wants to um to one just get representation actually have a voting member of congress and and two voting senators and if they decided to become states obviously that would be an option as well and so i think right now that we have um, two territories, or a territory and an area that, um, that Americans live in, and they have nominal representation. They're taxed. They're regulated by our laws. Um, in the case of Puerto Rico, they're 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 having to, you know, deal with massive debt crises. Um, and there's decisions being made uh, with their tax dollars um, that they don't have a say in. And I think that representation. Uh, is, is crucial. So I would, I would go there first uh, before addressing the filibuster.
1: Let's come back to some policy here. What is your view of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, Republicans' 2017 tax reform bill that permanently cut corporate taxes and temporarily cut personal income taxes? Would you like the Senate to consider legislation repealing or significantly changing the law? And would you like any revenues from the reform to go to anything specific?
2: Well, I think the biggest – the thing that really bothered me about the, 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 the big corporate tax cuts is it wasn't more focused on small and medium businesses. Um, I think that the corporations the, – the, the, some of the largest corporations in the world who have a really good operation of screwing over the American people and nickel and diming their customers and the consumers – um, got a lot of money um, that was supposed to go back into creating more jobs and reinvesting instead went to buy back their own shares and artificially inflate their stock prices. And so we we literally you know gave you know gave people all this you know the corporations some of the the largest corporations in the world all this extra money and they didn't do what actually they really said they were going to do. Um, AT and is a good example. They continue to talk. They continue to. Uh, announce and push for more outsourcing of their um, uh, their workers, which are unionized. Uh, they're trying to outsource the unionized part of their workforce here in Georgia and, um, and outsource it to places that don't have strong labor rec- uh, representation. And so I'm uh, that that would be I think one area where I would like to try to find some common ground. I think we should recognize that there are small and medium businesses In this state that really could um, and have benefited from those tax cuts because they've actually put it back into their local business Um, but some of these huge corporations um, uh, got away with just hundreds of billions of dollars that i think you know that they quite honestly didn't need and and didn't use the way they said they were going to use it
1: One key criminal justice reform policy you pursued as mayor of Clarkston was to decriminalize possession of small amounts of marijuana, but the city of Clarkston couldn't legalize marijuana within its borders. Federal policy plays a decisive role here. What is your view of federal marijuana policy, and how would any reforms you consider take into account the racialized history of drug law enforcement?
2: Well, absolutely. Um, You know, when we passed our ticket-only offense in in, uh, in Clarkston in 2016, you know, we were warned by Governor Nathan Deal, warned by the Chief um, Prosecutor's Counsel that what we were doing was wrong and was breaking the law. And uh, later, the Attorney General, Sam Owens at the time, uh, agreed that actually what we had done was uh, very clever um, and keeping within the spirit of the law that gave uh, concurrent jurisdiction to the Missile Court on how to, to punish uh, possession of one ounce of marijuana or less. Um, by the way, that law, that concurrent jurisdiction law, was passed in 1983, the year I was born. And so, you know, one, just approaching it from, you know, a standpoint of a millennial, um, someone uh, running for office and serving in office who. Was arrested and spent nine hours in jail for political canvassing in the wealthy suburb uh, neighborhood of uh, uh, Buckhead here in Atlanta area. The 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 urgency and uh, uh, or thus I say the lack of urgency um, over the last thirty years in this supposed you know war on drugs um, I think has been a disgrace. Um, we have incarcerated way too many people. We've incarcerated people. Who were committing no violent acts and weren't causing any problems in the community, um, but with that arrests with that time in jail with that record um, have literally ruined the lives of thousands and thousands of people, and disproportionately it's been young black men and so the the, the lack of urgency was appalling, and you know as soon as I realized that, that the municipal court, had the power to change the way we punish marijuana, it was something that we had to move on. It was an urgent matter because the longer we waited, the more it meant the more people that would be caught up in the system. And I'm just sad to say that it took you know 33 years um, for someone to actually do something about it. Um, but that's what it you know it takes sometimes. You have to have someone who's willing to push the envelope and 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 try something new. And I'm really proud to say that after we passed our ordinance. Um, the city of Atlanta, the city of South Fulton, uh, now Chambly here, uh, Chambly City in here at DeKalb County, uh, Macon recently passed an ordinance, Athens is considering it, Savannah, Augusta, and they've all used our templates for um, this ticket-only offense. And even the, the small town of Ludowisi out in rural Georgia uh, passed a similar ordinance. Um, not too soon after we um, Atlanta passed theirs. And so um, I'm proud to have led on that effort. I'm I'm glad that, you know, that politicians around the state um, have taken action on it where they could. Um, I'm disappointed in the council members and mayors who know that they can ha- they have this power to decriminalize marijuana at their local level and still did not act uh, when they had the power. Um, having power means means doing something about it, and hopefully you're doing something about it to protect your your residents and your citizens. And so, uh, at the federal level, I'll be an advocate 100% for decriminalization. We have to remove the, from the Controlled Substance Act. We have to look at expungements, um, and quite frankly, I think we have to look at um, at a way to address. … the the financial penalties that tens of thousands of Georgians have paid because of these low-level marijuana possession charges. So that would be like number one. We have to decriminalize it. Now, if legislation came before the Senate and was for legalization um, to tax it, regulate it… Uh, to, um, to, uh, to, to create that, that system that so many other countries have uh, in, implemented and other states have implemented successfully, um, I would support that 100%.
1: Both you and Teresa Tomlinson have a pretty good record when it comes to advocate, advocating for the LGBTQ community. And Clarkson recently passed an LGBTQ ordinance uh, while you've been mayor. What are you going to do to support LGBTQ Americans in the workplace and in achieving true personal equality as compared to their straight peers if elected?
2: Well, I definitely would support the the, the House bill that in and the same that was just passed recently that mirrors the employment discrimination and protections uh, pr- uh, protections that um, that Clarkston, Doraville, um, Atlanta, and more recently Chambly and other cities are. are are considering, have passed and are considering. And so we have to set the marker that that no private business should be able to discriminate um, based on someone's not just sexual orientation or identity, um, but all hosted issues um, that I think right now aren't currently and adequately protected by federal discrimination and civil rights laws and so we have to look at a broader ranging civil rights protections for for all residents and there's a whole whole host of categories i think Um, but the ones that particularly stand out are identity sexual identity um, and and gay and lesbian um, and bisexual transgender you know i uh, was um, uh, one of four mayors back um, when the supreme court case uh, was um, being decided um, on the freedom to marry, and uh, it was uh, uh, the city of Clarkson, city of Decatur, city of East Point, the city of Atlanta that all signed on to the amicus brief in support of the um, uh, of uh, overturning uh, and getting the you know, giving the right for for um, for gays and lesbians to to marry and so I was proud to you know lead uh, on that uh, when it, when the opportunity came. And, uh, and with this um, upcoming amicus brief um, on an employment discrimination case that actually we, we saw that came out of Clayton County here in South Metro Atlanta, um, I've also signed on um, and our city has signed on uh, with that amicus brief. And so we've tried to do what we could in the, the legal and, and, and symbolic realm uh, for LGBT protections, um, and then, of course, where we actually have the power to legislate. Um, Clarkson and uh, through my leadership on city council and working with council members and um, other cities have created the the uh, the, the space for broad ranging protections um, for all of our residents um, in our city limits.
1: In the last week or two, uh, high profile incidents have illustrated the tense political climate we live in. The AJC reported one incident where a man put pro-Trump bumper stickers on a Gwinnett Democratic Party official's car, yelled at her, and chased her in his vehicle. And in another, State Representative Erica Thomas alleged a shopper told her to, quote, go back to where she came from over having too many items in the grocery store express lane, echoing the president's message to four members of Congress. We should note that the facts of Thomas's interaction are in dispute. But they raise this important question about tone and language from political leaders. As someone who would be a visible political leader, should you be elected to the Senate, how do you view your role—the—the the, the role your own words play as an example to the public?
2: Oh, absolutely. The, the words that we use, particularly as elected officials, with that power behind it, um, carries so much weight. And I, you know, I'll, I'll admit that I've had my my run-ins um, with. Uh, people on my city council early on when I was uh, first elected mayor uh, and had, you know, disagreements and, you know, had heated discussions. And, you know, that's part of politics. Um, you know, there's um, there's obviously a, a certain line where the freedom of speech, you know, uh, should be protected. But when it goes into harassing, uh, to assaulting, you know, fellow, uh, you know, Americans and residents who live here, uh, you know, we just should not tolerate that. Um, there has to be a line of, of of, of 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 political uh, professionalism, where we're going to obviously some people just are never going to agree with you, and you're you're never more right by the the louder you get or the more insulting you get. And you know the approach that I that I've tried to take in these last uh, few years as mayor is to do less talking, less tweeting, and more listening. I think that is the number one role. Of a public servant and someone particularly in elected office is to represent all of their constituents, and that means you have to spend time and you have to listen to people who not not just agree with you but disagree with you. And I can, you know, highlight the another reason I really am, you know, you know, not happy with our current Senator David Perdue is he's never had a town hall meeting. He's never he only meets with people in small settings that are regulated and that he's vetted. And when you go into the public sphere, um, and you're a public servant, you have to be you have to be willing to face your critics. And I can I can tell you, like guarantee you, if I'm elected to the U.S. Senate, I will have regular town hall meetings in person, not telephone town hall meetings, with real people. And I hope that there's more people there who disagree with me than agree with me, because I have found over the years, not just as mayor, but just working in politics, is if you listen to people long enough, you realize there's actually a lot of things that we that we share in common. And once we can figure out where we actually want to go, we agree on the endpoint. Getting there is just policy making, and it's coming up and being innovative and being creative. There is no right answer to uh, to policy making. There is no right answer that will be the right answer for the next. 20, 40, 50 years. And so we have to look at creating policies that take into account the viewpoints of people not just that we agree with, but also disagree with, and try to find that common ground. Of course, understanding that we're not always going to agree, and at some point you just have to say, well, I'm voting on this piece of legislation because I think it's the right course. I'm sorry that we disagree, um, but I hope that we can continue the discussion and keep working out something that will be the best um, for everyone and just move on, you know, and again, you know, do more listening and less talking.
1: So you mentioned Senator Perdue a moment ago. What do you make of Perdue's reaction to Trump's tweets telling four Congresswomen of color to go back where they came from? He said that the notion of the president's tweets, that the notion that the tweets were racist is outrageous. What do you think about that?
2: Well, I think he's just being political, quite frankly. And any Republican that criticizes Donald Trump ends up getting primaried, and several have you know lost their you know, end of their careers um because they weren't uh, you know chummy with President Trump. And you know, look, I mean he was uh, you know on the back nine, probably when um, the president was you know typing out furiously typing out those tweets over that weekend. And so you know, who knows if he knew it was being typed, if he was egging the president on. I don't know. But I guarantee you Senator Perdue is not going to criticize anything that Donald Trump says. He's going to do exactly what Donald Trump wants him to do um, because he cares more about his career um, and being an elected official than actually getting things done, particularly getting things done that he said he was going to go into Washington to change. Um, I mean this guy campaigned as the debt warrior. He was going to do everything he could. to to tackle the national deficits and and reduce our national debt. And then the first chance he gets to, you know, draw a contrast on, you know, these tax cuts offered no opportunity to offset those tax cuts, just added another, you know, over a trillion dollars to the the, the budget deficits um, and seems to have forgotten that pledge. And so, but that's what, that's what Donald Trump wanted. And so Donald Trump's going to get what he wants from David Perdue.
1: You entered this race by telling the press that you had looked at the progressive bona fides of the candidates running up, uh, running and rumored to run, and you wanted to see someone with a bolder progressive vision. Why is the candidate with the boldest progressive vision the candidate best positioned to flip the seat from Senator Purdue in 2020?
2: Well, I may have said positions, um, but it's more about the record. And again, this goes back to what I was saying earlier, being an advocate is politicians will tell you everything that you want to hear so so they can get your votes. What I'm saying is look at what I've done in Clarkston. You know where I stand on these issues The things I fought for in Clarkston, I will fight for in the Senate. And so I would just ask that voters just compare the records. Look at what the candidates have done don't look at only a, what they say they're going to do. Um, and it's as simple as that. Um, it's, you know, when you're running for office, a lot of promises get made, uh, but then when you're elected, it comes to, that's the time to actually do the real work. And so, you know, I, you know, during uh, my, these, these last two terms as mayor, I have used that opportunity, that power that was given to me to try to address the problems that existed in Clarkston um, that I think needed to be changed. And, you know, we're still working on it here in Clarkston um, and the work will continue long after I'm gone. Um, but I think uh, the important thing is to look at the record. Um, that's how you know where we stand.
1: We've covered a lot of politics and policy today, but are there any other subjects you want to touch on before we go?
2: Yeah, well, number one, the rent's too damn high. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, here in metro Atlanta, um, Clarkston is, is, is no different than a lot of other communities, um, around, the, around the country. Um, a minimum wage worker right now, there's only 22 counties in America where someone working a full-time job on minimum wage can afford a one-bedroom apartment. Uh, there are zero counties in America where someone working a minimum wage job can afford a two-bedroom apartment. In other words, a family. You cannot support a family on that. And, and the, 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 the way the housing market is situated right now um the, the the long history of jour segregation and um, housing policy from the federal down to state and local levels with exclusionary zoning, um, there have been um, a, a systematic uh, discrimination not just against black Americans, but also poor Americans. And whether they've been evicted once um, and they can never get an apartment because they're on the 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 the, the evicted list. Or because they, uh, their apartment complex was bought by a hedge fund, and now that hedge fund wants to make back a 20% return on profit, and so what do they do? They just raise the rents that year. And they have the power to do that. Uh, we don't have any rent control laws in Georgia, and so there's got to be a federal answer to address the 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 lack of new affordable housing that's being built, um, housing flexibility. You know, Clarkston just a few months ago approved the first tiny home neighborhood development in georgia and tiny homes aren't the solution for all housing but what we're creating is more housing home ownership opportunities um, in us on smaller lots um at a more affordable rate and this is a solution that exists in the housing market right now for millennials and college graduates looking for those starter homes who can't afford the mcmansions that are being built in some of these old neighborhoods and cities around atlanta and georgia Um, and they quite frankly can't afford the rent as well we also have retiring uh, baby boomers who don't who want to move out of their big homes there's a lot of families who would love to move into those big homes and if you're an empty nester you don't need all those square footage you can move into a cottage home or even maybe a tiny home. It's not only, uh, you know, more affordable, it's also better for the environment. It uses less energy, um, has, you know, less impact on the the stormwater system. And so the the housing issue has to be addressed. Um, I would encourage everyone listening to read the book, The Color of Law. It really, I think, informs my decision-making and my, my urgency in addressing not just the aftermath of redlining, but the systemic exclusionary zoning that has existed in this country to segregate um, our communities, and Atlanta is actually highlighted in that book uh, as an example, a egregious example of zoning that deliberately segregated and put um, poor uh, residents and particularly African American and Black residents um, near and higher density, um, more industrialized areas. And so, so, so the housing situation has to be addressed through um, through federal action Uh, and then the final thing I'll just add um, is um, as a, a mayor as a as a receiver of local community development block grants I can say first and foremost that the money that comes back from the federal government to invest in community projects that deliver real value to real people is one of the most powerful things the federal government can do. And so I am very supportive of finding more ways to decentralize power out of DC and to give it back to the people, um, in the local communities. Um, we have to find more ways, uh, to give, uh, power and resources back to communities who know how to spend them um, in the best way that's going to benefit them. Um, and uh, that's something that I think gets kind of lost in the you know the Republican Democratic argue, is it bigger government? Is it smaller government? Is it more efficient government? Um, I have faith that the people uh, in towns and counties and school boards, um, that their political systems, if strong and transparent um, and, and with equitable voting access, uh, we'll elect leaders um, who will be good public servants, and if we provide more opportunities for them to apply and receive funding that are desperately needed for schools that are falling apart, for roads um, that are crumbling, for in- in expanding access to recreation and green space um, and educational programs, those are the opportunities that and the power of the federal government can have by delivering more of those resources back to the local community.
1: Well, Mayor Ted, thanks so much for joining the podcast and for covering all of this ground with us. Um, If people want to learn more about your Senate campaign, how can they do that?
2: They can go to tedforgeorgia.com.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much again. And um, we really appreciate you coming on. And we look forward to seeing how this uh, how the campaign progresses.
2: Great. Thank you so much.
0: That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend, and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.